I remember when this question first came up, I remember rolling my eyes to some extent, because I think the first number I heard was like $50,000 or dinner with Jay-Z. Okay. And, it's grown. And, and, yeah, clearly it's like, it's yeah, It's definitely grown, I guess, because Jay-Z is richer now. I guess we got to grow the number for whatever reason. Hi, I'm Eric. And I'm Brittany. And this is For Colored Nerds. The weekly show where we peel back the layers of Black culture we rarely discuss in mixed company. Today, we sat down with Dan Runcy, host and founder of Trapital Media. So Trapital is a website, newsletter, and podcast dedicated to covering the culture's biggest and most innovative dealmakers. From record-breaking brand partnerships to writing a case study on Beyonce's surprise album drop, literally, Dan does it all. We got to chat with Dan about his process, what it's like to interview moguls like Issa Rae about their business strategies, how commercialism is changing what it means to be an authentic artist, and perhaps most importantly, we ask him the half a million dollar question that's had our timelines in a chokehold for years. Find out the answers to all those and more after the break. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Dan Runcie, welcome to the show. We are so excited to have you here today. Thank you for having me. Big fan, as both of you know, been following the journey. I feel honored to be here. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. So with Trapital, the site, newsletter, podcast, you know, you specialize in this awesome mix of part journalism, part kind of like cultural critic, observer, at the intersection of business and hip-hop. And so, like, hip-hop and its business is everywhere, and especially in American culture. But it feels like you found this gap in the market in terms of, like, how to cover it. When was the moment you realized something was kind of missing from how we talk about and how we cover hip-hop and its business? The moment for me was 2014. And that was the year that Harvard Business School had put out this case study on Beyonce and her surprise album drop for when she had done that self-titled album drop. It was a big deal. Everyone was talking about it. And I remember noticing that because I was in business school at the time, had spent all this time breaking down all these case studies on all these legacy companies in America, right? Your New York Times or your Coca-Cola and all these other deals. But seeing Beyonce have one of those case studies was like, wow, this is great. This is something. Mm -hmm. And I saw all of the attention that it got. Every publication was writing about it. The fact that this was so unique 
but it stuck out to me for two reasons. One, I mean, I read the case study and it was a great breakdown. I loved it. But on the other <laughs> side, the fact that this made as many headlines as it did means that hmm. it was as rare as it was. And to me, that was mm-hmm. a signal to say there is so many more other types of worthy business deals that have happened, other opportunities. And we've gotten a little bit of that with a case study like this or your occasional list of who's making what, but there wasn't anything mm-hmm. to that level consistently that was highlighting the moves that a lot of these artists were making. So that had stuck with me, had started doing that mostly on the side, exploring my own thoughts of writing a few different blogs and started to do some freelance work on the side. This is while I was still working full time, by the way. And I started to see that it was picking up traction. I was starting to write for more known publications, started to get my word out there a bit. But even though I was doing that, it still felt out of place. And I didn't feel like it was necessarily making the impact. And when I saw that media was trending in this direction where we were seeing more niche opportunities with both podcasting and newsletters and things like that, I said, if I know the area that I want to cover, then it probably makes sense to have that be an established home. So that's when I started Trapital. It makes so much sense. I remember that case study. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't read a ton of business case studies, but I remember that (laughs) uh, that moment. It did feel rare. It still does kind of feel pretty rare, which is part of the reason why it feels so great that like you're kind of doing this work in the space. And to be specific, uh, you don't just put out like a post saying, you know, Jay-Z or Beyonce signed some deal. You really take a very kind of holistic look at a creator's business, you know, like where their ideas seem to come from, who they work with, what is their approach for growth. You get to kind of sit in this world of some of your favorite creators. Can you tell us a bit about like your process? Yeah, it goes through a few stages. So I often will think back to deals that I may remember from growing up as a fan of hip hop, as a fan of R&B and seeing both of the success stories and also some of the challenges. But then I'll also see the headlines whenever there's a big deal that's happening or whether there's a move that's happening. So it's a matter of being able to put together the pieces and thinking about that and then thinking through, okay, what about all of these business principles that I had been taught, whether it was on the job or elsewhere, that had been about established other areas where it's like the tech sector looking at measuring the customer acquisition cost or the lifetime value of a customer, or looking at some of the trade-offs of a business strategy and then thinking through, and it's like, well, Rockefeller did the same thing when this happened, right? (laughs) Or also thinking about some of the interpersonal challenges. I think so many of us have heard stories about the uh, disagreements between Bob Iger or, you know, the the current Mm -hmm. CEO now, uh, Bob Chapek at Disney. But if you look at it, Hip-hop had those two. Jay-Z and Damon Dash's mm-hmm. split was one of the most well-discussed and you know highly analyzed things. But how can we look at that story and tell it in a different lens or compare different lights or show a side of it that maybe hasn't necessarily been discussed? And I think that's where I've been able to find that sweet spot. And I do think that even for content that may be a bit more on the business side or strategy side, making it relatable, making it um, a form of entertainment and that type of way is, I think, what helps make it, you know, reach as many people as possible. Have any of the artists, you know, that you profile or covered, like reached out to be like, huh, you actually got that right. Or like, you know, have they, have you gotten any feedback from this business that you've been covering and interacting with about some of the analysis you're doing? 
Yeah, I have. And I think that's one of the interesting things with it because I've heard both sides of it, right? I've had <laughs> one of the one of the major streaming companies that I had written a pretty fair uh, piece on. Some of it was highlighting some of the things they did. Some of it was challenging it. And then I later talked to one of the execs there and he was like, you sound like you're in our boardroom breaking this down. And, I, and he, you know, it was almost a way to suss out, you know, where am I getting my stuff? But I was like, hey, I'll be honest, you know, most of this was based on secondary information and it's just putting two and two together in a way that hadn't necessarily been done before. Um, yeah. On the other side of it, you know, I'll also get some people that have been either a bit frustrated or taken aback by something I said. But mm. I think, ironically, those can sometimes lead to some of the more interesting and uh, thriving relationships, both from an understanding perspective and learning. Because I think what I've realized in this space is that because especially with both the artists themselves or the business leaders, the people that are closest to them or the people that work for them come off and look at them as this unrelatable type of person in a way versus mm. me coming in, the person that has the independent voice, the independent analysis and breakdown that has less, I would say, at stake or at least from their yeah. perspective to be able to speak my mind and call things out the way it is there almost is a bit of like, huh, okay, this person was willing to push back on what I put out there. Let me see what they're all about. And then, you know, that can often spark to an interesting conversation where ironically, either some of the people I've had on my podcast or some of the people I've gotten to know <laughs> are people that I first either, I wouldn't say put on blast because that's a strong way to put it, but there was at least <laughs> some type of critical critique that I'm sure they got enough people forwarding to them that made someone raise an eyebrow. I really loved your newsletter where you broke down Issa Rae's content strategy from Patreon to HBO to radio and how they worked really well together in so many different ways. There were like all these arrows that just went pointed from like one to the other as to like how she was sort of driving her fans to her content and just getting them to sort of like buy into her brand as a whole. And late last year, you had her as a guest on your podcast. Like, how does it feel to go from talking about some of these industry giants to actually talking to them? It was great. That that felt like a real full circle moment. I think for me, someone that had been following her work for a while now, both as a fan, but also mm -hmm. as someone that is building and creating my own business, you're seeing who are the people that have done this really well. And I think her journey spoke to that in so many levels. Even before Awkward Black Girl, you think back to her being at Stanford and doing these dorm diary series and starting these mm. groups. So much mm -hmm. of that are so many of those steps in those years of process that I think people can often forget about when you think about the totality of the journey. And I do think that we're in this phase where there's people who I think signify each phase of whether it's the evolution as a mogul or the evolution as someone in this space. And I think for her, the journey from your Facebook groups and your videos to a YouTube show, to HBO, to this large deal that she now has with a major distributor to put out essentially the type of content she wants and her own studio. Mm -hmm. yeah. That I think speaks to so much in entertainment, but also in music as well. She started her own record label that clearly yeah. saw the opportunity with how great of an ear Insecure as a show was for the mm -hmm. music sync and all the other opportunities there. All of it came together and being able to see how she did that, I think in a lot of ways it was relatable but then also, I think because of how transparent she's been in her 
interviews. And I think you can kind of just get that sense from her vibe. I felt like yeah. she would be a great person to have because you could actually have an honest conversation on the podcast. Um, one of the mm. things that always stuck out to me because it's something that I think about, I know it's something that a lot of creators think about is a bit of this trade-off between whether you are the owner of what you are doing or whether you have some type mm. of partnerships to amplify mm. the work that you're doing. And she had had this quote where she was talking about how she saw Taylor Swift in the public fight to get her master's back and how that had in many ways inspired her with radio, her record label to make sure that the artist she signs signed her masters. But in that same interview, she was talking mm. about how with Insecure, she didn't own the show. HBO owned the show, which yeah. clearly is a very different yeah. dynamic than what she did with Awkward Black Girl. But it's not unique for people going to that level. So I asked her that question and she was pretty honest. It's also like you're trading in at this point, you know, I have a deal with Warner and that means that they pay you a particular amount to be able to have access to the things that you create. So right now it's a trade-off. Do I want to make a certain amount of money and give my ideas to this company at this time with, with the guarantee of distribution on a platform that I very much respect? Yeah, I don't mind that. But in the future, do I want to be able to own the distribution platform? Do I want to be able to have control that? Maybe um, I think about the own Oprah model a lot, and I think that that's so powerful and that's aspirational, but that's also a lot of work. And she's like, you know what, this is something I still struggle with, but I made the choice I made based on the position that I was in my career. And it's hard to blame her for that. But are there still opportunities for her to have a bit of that balance? And I know that's something that the three of us have talked about before and just some of yeah. the trade offs mm -hmm. with that. I think hearing that is where it's that reminder of, hey, regardless of what level you're at, whether you're at my level or whether you're at her level, everyone is thinking about these trade-offs and these decisions in the same way. They may have a different number of zeros on the back of them in evaluating those decisions, <laughs> yeah. but they are the same decisions <laughs> at the end of the day. Absolutely. And kind of brings me to something I've actually been thinking about a lot. So I love business and just in general, kind of reading about business, the things that people are kind of trying and how like different industries are moving forward. But I'm wondering how you think about that kind of outsized role capitalism and commercialism kind of have come to play in hip hop. Uh, and, you know, I'm not talking about wealth boasting, like I got a chain or, you know, this or that, but I'm talking more so like you know, Travis Scott or like Meg The Stallion, their fast food deals, you know, has the idea that commercial success and partnership kind of outside music being something that like hurts your credibility? Do you think that's like a relic of the past? If so or not, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a great question. It's something I've thought a lot about, too, because I had looked at this comparison, how Travis Scott, I think it was the first year during the pandemic, uh, 2020. He grossed over $100 million, which is a ton of money. And most wow. of that came from all of those partnerships with PlayStation and Tenet and McDonald's and all those other things, right? <laughs> right? So most of it wasn't even from music, and he could have toured that year. All of it was from just leveraging yeah. his hype beast. And if you compare that to people who were equally as big as Travis Scott was, but in the 2000s, maybe Lil Wayne earned a sixth or a fifth of that when he was the biggest rapper. Mm. So when you think about that, there definitely is a difference. I, I feel like in a lot of ways, it highlights a separation of how people can either specialize in a particular area 
or they don't necessarily have to have the full package. I feel like before, let's say in the days where, you know, someone like Jay-Z came up, you had to have the lyrics and the glimmer and this full package to even be at the place where someone would want to do a type of deal with you. And as big as Travis is, he's not someone that's necessarily known for lyricism. He's definitely built his brand (laughs) on hype. And with that, he's maximizing that versus you have plenty other rappers who are supreme lyricists, but they don't get the same radio play. They're not playing at the Grammys or any of those types of things. So I think because of that separation, you really are starting to see separate lanes. I mean, that said, I think it's great that someone like Meg or even what we've seen Sweetie Mm. do, they're leveraging their brands. They're leveraging the marketability that they have to maximize the revenue. Because I do think that you know, especially for them, the industry hasn't always been the most favorable to women, especially black women, especially black women in hip hop. So I'm glad that they're getting theirs. But in a lot of ways, it is become a separate discussion, maybe from how we looked at hip hop 10, 20 years ago, like 10, 20 years ago was very much okay, this complete package, and then does the complete package also help you monetize versus now you're kind of in this space where you could have some of the best lyricists, you could have some of the best marketers, and you could have some of the best, you know, brand partnership movers, and those can all be different people. And I think that's been an interesting shift that I don't know if it's necessarily better or worse, but I guess it makes for more of a unique area where people can have different lanes in hip hop. I'm happy Meg and Sweetie and like all those folks are able to finally like get access to the type of deals and partnerships and, and money that like, you know, kind of uh, so many other our top male rappers have been getting. It does sometimes stress me out a bit, though, just like what that means for how much of McDonald's or, you know, any of these other like huge corporations feel like they might have some sort of claim, not necessarily over Travis or Meg, but just like over the over hip hop itself. It's just, I don't know, sometimes like I'm into it, but sometimes it makes me queasy. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> I think an example of this could even be the hype around Pusha T and that diss track that he put out with Harvey's. The whole world love it. Now I gotta crush it. Vallejo fishes. Then you should be disgusted. How dare you sell a square fish asking us to trust it? A half slice of cheese. Mickey D's on a budget. Arby's crispy fish is simply. I have a lot of thoughts on that, but I want to hear your thoughts about that. If I'm Pusha T, then on some front, it's like, okay. Good for you, because clearly McDonald's made a ton of money and earned media and attention from that jingle that you did almost 20 years ago. So if this (laughs) is your comeback for that, then, hey, you know, I can't I I, I can't blame (laughs) you on that. I do think, though, that. I could only imagine how much money Pusha T got for that or how that was arranged in that way, but. I feel like could this set off a further trend of these things? Because we're already seeing, you know, all of whether it's Migos and others that have partnered with Popeyes after that chicken sandwich is going crazy. Like, could in many ways some hip hop artists get most of their bag from doing these type of diss tracks? I mean, we all see how Wendy's always (laughs) tries to pop off and become a unofficial member of Black Twitter with the way that it, you know, calls back (laughs) at people. Like, is that the direction that we're going? I don't know. I mean, it's. So I think overall, I was happy for Pusha T if this is an opportunity for him to get some type of retribution and, you know, slide in his subliminal coke raps in that jingle (laughs) for RPs. But (laughs) hey, (laughs) but what do you think, Brittany? On a personal level, 
don't appreciate McDonald's fish sandwich, like filet of fish slander, period. Pusha T has obviously had a very long career with so many different twists and turns, turns to it. Yep. Right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, this Arby's diss track, to me, it feels like the advent of like a new, a new turn in the Pusha T story, specifically because it defangs the value of a diss track. It's a type of artistry that really, I don't want to sound like an old person, but it used to really mean something. You could diss yeah. somebody and die. Because, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Get shot and die because of something that you had said to disrespect them. So it's interesting to see how somebody who recently, like I said, a diss track really defined um, his most recent era of fame, kind of like defanged the purpose of that type of song for like a fast food deal. And I don't, I'm not saying it's necessarily good or bad, but I do think that it's an important turning point sort of in where we are with these brand deals between artists and major brands. That's a good point with him specifically because the diss track against Drake was the most famous diss track I'd say we've had in the past Easy. five years. <laughs> Easy. The story of Adidon was a very, very big deal back in like 2018. That was, that was a <laughs> yeah. wild time. It's deeper than rap. We talking character. Let me keep with the facts. You are hiding a child. Let that boy come home. Deadbeat motherfucker playing border patrol. Ooh, Adonis is your son, and he deserves more than an Adidas press run. The only one that maybe I think you know had a bigger impact, but even that was more than five years ago. Drake's back to back. I guess that was almost seven years yeah. ago at this point. But yeah, oh, so wow. you think about how impactful that was. And then more broadly, something else you said, Brittany's making me just think about issues that people have had with McDonald's. I remember it was almost two mm -hmm. years ago mm -hmm. when Travis Scott's deal was announced, there was some pushback because along the same time, there was discussion about how McDonald's wasn't paying or offering opportunities to black right. franchisees to the same way that it was others or offering support. I forget the exact details mm -hmm. of the case, but I remember people wondering, hey, is there some type of pushback? And then it started to, I think, engulf into the broader conversation around Rock Nation's partnership there with the NFL and where is yeah. that either compromising or that line of integrity or of partnering with an organization that maybe has mm -hmm. done things that are supporting causes that you wouldn't necessarily support or be aligned with yourself? And what is your line with what you're willing to stand for and what you're not willing to stand for? Mm, yeah. See, this That's is why have, a good point. This is like the perfect week to have <laughs> show because I've like, been dying to talk to somebody about this. But, you know, Something that um, I heard you remark on another podcast, I believe it was a Morning Brew podcast, Business Casual, and you remarked that younger hip-hop artists, like some of the people that we're talking about, like Megan Thee Stallion or Cardi B, or even I think about Lil Yachty. Lil Yachty had like a huge mm -hmm. brand deal with Sprite before he even really- Popped, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. It was early. Yeah, I mean, very, very early. You've remarked that these younger hip-hop artists, like those people, are making millions, millions of dollars- sooner than previous generations of hip-hop artists. And then when you think about the originators, like Cool Herc or Grandmaster Flash or Sugar Hill Gang or any of those people, a lot of those artists missed out on that kind of money completely. I wonder, what do you think something like hip-hop reparations would look like? Or how could it even be achieved? It's interesting because... LL Cool J and Swiss Beats had been pushing around this type of idea for a while. 
they had labeled it a hip hop founders fund, but they wanted to have some type of way to support further generation because they called out the exact thing you said, right? If it weren't for Cool Herc or any of the folks in the 70s or 80s, we wouldn't be where it is now where Lil Durk can sign a $40 million deal. And most people, yeah. even a lot of yeah. people that listen to hip hop may not be able to name several Lil Durk songs, but the people that love Lil Durk know every song. So we're kind of in that phase yeah. with it. I think that their idea has kind of taken shape in a few ways. I know that LL has done a lot on the philanthropy front, and I know with Rock the Bells, he's trying to do some yeah. things there to help support that generation. But I do think that the way Swiss Beats had structured verses has been a way to mm -hmm. kind of address this, right? So of course, hmm. with the battles, so many of the battles are with some of these artists that didn't necessarily earn the most. Most of the versus artists don't go back all the way to the 70s and 80s like Cool Herc, but he does mm -hmm. have a lot of the folks from yeah. the 90s and 2000s that maybe they earned a few millions, but they definitely didn't earn this, this Travis Scott kind of money, right? But mm. when he did the deal for versus to get acquired by Triller, each of those artists had gotten some level of equity in the company, hmm. and that was his way to be able to offer this extension. We don't know the terms for how much Versus yeah. ended up selling for, how much Triller acquired it for, but at least we knew that, okay, there was a payment there and then potentially a further payment now that Triller itself is trying to get acquired. So even names like a DMX, who I think in many ways was the same generation mm -hmm. as your Jay-Z's or even your Diddy's or some of these yeah. mm. artists that were in their late 40s or early 50s pretty recently, he was in many ways even bigger than some of them at particular moments, but for many yeah. of the challenges in his life, never got to that moment. So him being able to get on a cap table of uh, Tech Company One or being able to see a potential exit was huge. Unfortunately, he didn't live through to be able to see all the potential benefits yeah. of it, but I do feel like that's something that they wanted to be able to do. I think the thing is, it's one of these ironic things where if you ask people for money to donate for something or to be able to give or some type of check where they cut where a certain percentage of their deal goes to something, then mm -hmm. you may get a sliver of that. But I think the tough thing is now, which is kind of like we're saying, so much of this money now is even beyond these record label contracts. It's all of these various deals yeah. that can happen with, you know, Lotto or uh, Meg Thee Stallion with some of these companies. How do you right. get a slice of that? Even if the big three record labels or Apple or Spotify are on board, how do you get a cut of this corporate money? But maybe a cut of the corporate money is kind of like how Swiss did it, where it's like, okay, how can we all just have something you all participate in and give you a cut of this billion-dollar exit if we end up having it? So that could be a way to get even more money than I think you know some of the, I guess, asking for some type of payment. But it's tough. It's something that I would like to see, because obviously we wouldn't be in this position without it. And I wouldn't even be covering this space myself if it weren't mm. for the kind of deals that are happening now. But it's something that I think, I hope the conversation continues to happen because it shouldn't stop with just Triller being acquired. After the break, we're continuing our conversation with Dan about ownership, getting into Beyonce's streaming strategy, and how the expanding digital landscape will affect Gen Z artists. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by AARP. 
Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back. All right, now before the break, we left off talking about verses and how to make sure the artists who work so hard to create the soundtrack of our lives get the credit and money they deserve. Yeah, and it's so interesting just to look at like the verses ecosystem because I didn't even know that piece about him providing kind of ownership stake to some of the artists that were required. That's really amazing to hear. What I heard a lot kind of coming out of it as being like one of the biggest draws for artists um, in participating in verses was the massive rise in streaming revenue that like pops up kind of in the before and after of the actual Versus event. And that piece has been really amazing to kind of see. In some ways, it's really great to hear at least the intention behind it. We all know sometimes when you get to the nitty gritty, it doesn't quite work out like that. But I appreciate that that intention is there to care for those folks. And even you know, looking at I think D- DMX's life and legacy really underscores why like efforts like that could be so mm-hmm. um, important. Right. I was going to say, too, around the time that X had passed, Black Rob had passed away as well. And yep. he's another artist, yeah. I think, similar age range, and at one point had one of the hottest songs of the summer. But you're seeing him struggle, and it's clear that it's reminding you of things as, yeah, if you're an artist— it can be hard to get healthcare benefits or get many of these things. And we're especially talking about Black folks in their late 40s, early 50s, when there's so many health mm-hmm. things that we have to keep an eye out for. And that's where it gets scary, right? When you see these stories of people, and even outside of music, like whether it was um, 
what was the name of the actor that played Tommy from Martin? Like when he passed away, it was kind of like, oh, oh yeah. man, like Tommy right. Ford. Yeah, when you see these deaths come, I mean, obviously, I know that entertainment is slightly different than the music industry, but it is kind of just mm-hmm. thinking about this era where you had these people that made such foundational entertainment that many of us grew up on, but they may mm-hmm. not be on TV nearly as much as they once were. And because of that, how are they doing? Because if it weren't for them, a lot of the people yeah. getting these. Netflix all around deals may not be able to get them, especially with the amount of opportunities going to a lot of black entertainers across the board. How can we find a way to help take care of those people? Right. Yeah. I'm I'm hoping that like eventually it gets to a point where the music industry as a whole, like the major labels are a lot more responsive and responsible about things mm-hmm. like that, because it seems like the calls for, repair are coming from other black artists who made more money. (laughs) You know, they're coming from black people of younger generations. There are so many black music executives, but there are very few black folks that really own, like own outside of partnership with another major organization that are really in a position to like really shake the table and change things. But what you just said about Tommy, it, it made me think about like a certain type of of stardom, like the kind of stardom where everybody watches your show, like in the case of Martin, or, you know, if we're talking about a pop star musician, like everyone knows your music. I first became interested in your work three years ago when I came across one of your most popular posts ever, Beyonce's streaming strategy explained. I'm sure you've been asked about it a million times, but it was published like the day after I think her homecoming documentary hit Netflix. I was so excited watching the documentary. So when I saw your post the next day, I was like, I don't know who this is, but I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> this is exactly what my soul needed. I, it was amazing to me because like Homecoming, I felt like I couldn't read enough of it when it dropped at that time because as an adult, I found it so rare to have such a major pop cultural moment where like everybody I know is aware of it or watched it or knows what it is. It's harder to do that now. In your post, you sort of broke down kind of like how that works. You broke down how Beyonce funnels her casual fans as well as members of the Mm -hmm. Beehive sort of into her content universe and how streaming projects like the Homecoming documentary, how it speaks differently to all those different sectors of customer. But that post, it really clarified for me why Beyonce's strategy is so tight and why millennial stars, I'll say, like a Beyonce or Rihanna, seems so omnipresent. Which Black Gen Z artists do you see following in their footsteps or achieving that kind of success in, success in the future? Or like, is that kind of like omnipresent stardom no longer achievable for younger generations? It's a great question. And thank you for that. I'm, I'm glad you like that uh, Beyonce post. That was definitely <laughs> one of my favorites. And yeah, to, to Eric's point, that was a, a, a full thing. I mean, I had on the calendar, I was like, I'm watching this and I'm going to get my thoughts out about what I think about this afterwards. So it was a it was a busy day, but I made sure I got it out the <laughs> next day. But to your question, though, I do think that it is very tough because I think in this era, the people who became stars and known entities before streaming and social media really took off to the way it is now. I kind of look at like this 2013, 14, 15 range as this like acceleration point of like before or after. It's like, (laughs) if you were a star before then, you have a much easier time leveraging the 
benefits you already had from a past generation of monoculture or of at least some type of omnipresence so that when you continue to do a big deal, you already have that in place. I think it is Mm -hmm. harder to do that because, yeah, I think not just was it special to have that moment when Homecoming came out, but even the year before that, when she performed at Coachella, it felt like it was this appointment viewing type of thing where anywhere you turned on the internet, you couldn't get away from it. And I say that in a good way because of how fun it was to feel like you had this collective experience with someone. And I'm sure if and when Rihanna releases her next album, it'll probably be a similar thing because of how long people have really waited for this. It's going to be a lot harder, but on the other hand, there are people that I feel like could potentially have some direction there on that front. I mean, I look at the popularity of a group like a a BTS, and I'm pretty sure that they are all Mm -hmm. still quite Mm -hmm. young. Of course, you know, they're not, you know, making this genre of music or in this hip hop and R&B space itself, but they are huge in their own right. I also look at someone like a Bad Bunny, although maybe a bit less so Mm -hmm. in the US, but I I think he is in that age range and he is someone that is a global superstars tickets sell out and everyone complains about how expensive they are. You could probably double his ticket price and still sell out. Right. So I do think there are areas we see this. It may just look, I think it maybe just looks a little different than how it did when we were more likely to see the folks who maybe were from hip hop or were American artists in that type of way. I would still like to see, cause I still do think it is possible, but it's tough. I mean, I look at even within hip hop, I look at the performance of someone like a Drake, whether it is with what he's able to do from a touring perspective mm. or what he's able to do from an album sales, or even less about the quality of the albums and more about just the discussion that happens anytime a Drake mm. album comes Real out. Pop. Is there going to be, like, I, can I think about someone under the age of 26 that will get to that level with? And yeah. I don't know. I mean, that, that isn't a knock because I think there's so many talented artists at that range, you know, Eric, I think we're talking about Baby Keem um, recently. I think, you know, yeah. he's definitely yeah. someone on that list, but he also was a cosign, Kendrick Lamar's cousin, right? So yeah. we'll see. Yeah, it's so under, under 26, who can be that? And part of it is because I, I don't know, for what it's worth, if you ask me to list a hundred or like even for hell, 25, you know, like Gen <laughs> Z uh, under 26 stars, I probably could not do it. So, you know, that speaks to this a little bit, but it does feel uh, that person who could be on the cusp does feel elusive, I yeah. guess. Like, how old, is, how old is Doja Cat? That's what I was going to say. I think she might be 26 or 27. Yeah, I think she's in that age range. I think so. The other thing this made me think about, too, is, you, you know, the whole concept of being Black famous, right? And I yeah. think about how will that change and how will that evolve, right? Because I think maybe there's kind of this phase where There's the regulars that are in, whether it's a Tyler Perry movie, for instance, and it's like, okay, if you're not watching these movies deeply, then you may not necessarily recognize these. But yeah, like even the concept of that, like, what will that look like? Obviously, I think it's easy for people in our generation to think back to um, people who are characters on TV shows from the WB or UPN or something like that. But I don't know if that's going to exist in the same way now. So your insight has been so amazing. There's one very, very important question that feels like we cannot have you here and not ask you. To be honest, I would say like your answer to this, uh, I think I at least would trust maybe more than most. Yeah, Uh, Hopefully, if you you give the right one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. 
half a million in cash or dinner with Jay-Z? Mm. What are you doing? Oh, half a million in cash. <laughs> <laughs> that is the correct answer. Thank you, Dan Renzi. <laughs> no, please elaborate, though. Say more. Say more. It's funny because I remember when this question first came up, I remember rolling my eyes to some extent because I think the first number I heard was like $50,000 or dinner with Jay-Z. Okay. And it's grown. <laughs> yeah, clearly it's like it's yeah, it's definitely grown, I guess, because Jay-Z's richer now. I guess we gotta grow the number for whatever reason. <laughs> but um for me, I think that people often overrate the level of insights or knowledge or impact that they may get from a conversation that they may have with a celebrity, especially a celebrity that has written books himself about what he's done, done interviews himself about what he's done. Other people have done analysis and journalism on what he's done as well. So when you think about all the information that's out there, the likelihood that you are going to gain some fresh insight that he's storing up, that he's never shared with anyone, but then mm. you're going to get that, or that that dinner is you know, going to lead to a potential business opportunity, if you're someone that is even questioning this opportunity, because the people that I think could honestly would benefit from having that dinner, meaning that there's some business opportunity they would have, probably wouldn't even be considering the question on its premise to begin with. So I think that Jay-Z isn't immune to this, but I think sometimes people can overrate this just because we are a, a culture that's obsessed with celebrity. And I think especially Jay-Z, someone who's in this unique position where most people at least acknowledge or consider that he is the greatest rapper, or if not the, has to be in that conversation. And he is one of, if not the most respected business leaders in hip hop to come from hip hop. So that combination, I think, gives him this pull. But on the other hand, people think about this is half a million dollars. Think about all the things that you can do with that money. You think about, <laughs> oh you my know, gosh. look at everything else. Inflation is going crazy. You know, you can't even get a it house right gas. now with people. I was gonna say I could be in a good <laughs> retirement spot if I if I took five hundred k. Although there's a part of me that would take dinner with Jay Z. Oh yeah, just so I could ask him why he cheated on Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know how hard the slap was. That's like, how, a, like Solange is little, but she like she got power. Yeah. Like, what? Oh, actually, that makes me revise my. I, I think I would actually want to be like, what happened to the elevator? I don't know. I'm like, is that a five hundred thousand dollar question? Maybe not $50,000 question. I'm thinking about uh, it. Yeah, I'm thinking about I it. I wouldn't be mad at you, actually. I mean, just think about the scoop out story. If you could, if you yeah. could guarantee an honest answer from him, then there's a case to be made. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel you. Again, with the important details for the negotiation, Dan Renzi, <laughs> thank you so much, thank you so much. for joining us today. It's been a Thank pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. You know, I'm big fans of both of what you're doing, and it was an honor to be here. Oh, it's an honor to thank have you. you. So We're big fans of you, too. So yeah. thank you for coming. Thanks. For Colored Nerds was created by me, Brittany Luce, and Eric Eddings. It's supported by our production team at Stitcher, including producer Alexis Williams and social producer Elise Ellis. Marcus Hobb is our engineer, and Peter Clowney is head of content. Our theme music is by Willie Green. And look, y'all, we love hearing from our listeners. We love you all so much. So please connect with us and tell us what you thought of this episode. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at For Colored Nerds. And never miss an episode by following us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen. 
Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.